Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. When we decided to rent a theater with 1,600 seats for our first ever live debate a few months ago, most of our friends looked at us with a mixture of pity and concern. Never mind the fact that we would have to fill all 1,600 seats. The theater we booked was in Los Angeles, not exactly a city known for its culture of public debates, although I love it. And it wasn't just anywhere in LA, it was smack in the middle of downtown, where after hours can look a little bit like San Francisco during the day. And to make matters worse, we'd only managed to get the place on a Wednesday night. But we did it anyway, and we sold out every seat in the house. The line to get in was wrapped so far around the block that we had to start 30 minutes late. People were begging the box office to find just one more ticket. Moms emailed asking us before if the theater would allow children under five so they could attend but keep to their breastfeeding schedule. I did notice at least one mother with a very well-behaved newborn strapped to her chest. Jury's out on how he feels about the sexual revolution. And people came from all over. I met people from Vancouver, Seattle, New York, Nevada, Montana, Santa Barbara, and so many other cities and states. Someone drove in a retrofitted school bus down from San Francisco to have an after party for whoever wanted to come. There were at least three young priests who drove many miles to see the action, and one porn star, hi Ayla, who took a flight. Also in attendance, libertarian frat bros in suits, e-girls, trad boys who wondered out loud if the concession popcorn had seed oil, dads who had to run out to check in with the babysitter, actors from your favorite childhood TV show, comedians you've never heard of, writers you hate to love, angry Catholics, resigned atheists, closeted Trump voters, Mormons who saved themselves from marriage, young gay couples in crop tops, feminists, anti-feminists, and a whole lot of podcasters. The point is, We got a sense being in the room of how unbelievably diverse and energetic this community is. And holy shit, was it exciting. We learned that night that the free press isn't just a newsletter and honestly isn't just a podcast. We're a community. We're a community of curious people who are interested in debate. We also learned that our company's core values, that you can wrestle with complicated ideas without being contaminated by them, you can survive being a little bit offended, and that's actually really good for us, that those values are shared by all of you too. So today on Honestly, we finally wanted to share the full debate for those of you who couldn't be there in the theater that night. The proposition was this, has the sexual revolution failed? And we had a hell of a lineup featuring debaters Sarah Hader, Grimes, Anna Kachian, and Louise Perry. With the hindsight that comes with half a century, these four women debated whether the movement that promised women sexual equality and liberation has fulfilled its promises or whether it has failed. Women and maybe men too. Stay with us. It was an amazing night and you're going to want to hear all of it.
Listeners have honestly have probably heard me talk about Sapir, a quarterly journal edited by my friend and former colleague Brett Stevens, and for good reason. Sapir is home to thoughtful, heterodox analysis on topics we care a lot about on this show, foreign policy, domestic policy, education, the Middle East, and much more. With Israel at war and rising anti-Semitism in the West, including at our most elite universities, Sapir is more important than ever. Its current issue, called Friends and Foes, takes a deep, hard look at the people and principles that we can count on to counteract dangerous cultural and political trends near and far, and those that we can't. I recommend Danielle Haas's article on the human rights establishment. Haas was a senior editor at Human Rights Watch for over a decade, and she offers an intimate inside view of how human rights NGOs have lost their way and how far they have strayed from their founding missions. Check that essay out, along with the rest of Sapir's current friends and foes issue, at sapirjournal.org slash honestly. That's S-A-P-I-R journal.org forward slash honestly. And now, introducing the Free Press founder, Barry Weiss. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm so excited to welcome you to the first ever Free Press live debate. Tonight's debate would not be possible without the generosity of an organization that I deeply admire and that has stood by me since I was a student in college, and that's FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. I assume that if you're here tonight, you care about free speech. You believe in it. You believe in defending it, not just for people you like, but for people you can't stand. So FIRE is an organization that should be on all of your radars. Now, we live in a strange and paradoxical era. On the one hand, we have more freedoms than any people in any time and place in all of human history. We have pieces of glass in our pocket that allow us to access all of human knowledge and to connect to millions of people instantly around the world. And yet so many people I know, and maybe so many people you know, are closeted in their completely conventional, normal views. And that's because we live in a culture in which disagreement is taken as dislike. A culture in which it's too often considered heresy to consider the other side of an argument. A culture in which speech itself is considered violence. At the Free Press, we don't believe any of that. We believe that you can wrestle with complicated ideas without being contaminated by them. We believe that you can actually survive being a little bit offended and that that's actually a really good thing for all of us. At the Free Press, just as at FIRE, we believe that free speech isn't just a slogan. It is the most foundational of all values. Because without free speech, there is no journalism. There's no ability to take risks or to make new things. There's no search for truth, and there's certainly no debate. Which is why I could not be more thrilled to be moderating tonight's debate and to introduce the proposition to all of you. Has the sexual revolution failed? We'll discuss it over the next hour. 
But in many ways, it's a strange question for me or anyone in this room to be asking. Many of us have never lived in a world before the sexual revolution, and we kind of can't imagine our lives without it. I just look at my own life, and it's clear to me that the sexual revolution literally made my life possible. Sitting somewhere in this audience is Nellie, my wife, a phrase that, yes, give it up for Nellie. Just saying that phrase would have been incomprehensible 20 years ago. Sleeping at home across town is our baby, born in part thanks to miraculous scientific and technological advances that would have been unimaginable to our grandmothers. All of those things, plus the no-fault divorce I had in my 20s, the magical little pill I took for decades to make sure I wouldn't have a child before I was ready, even the idea of having my own desires and pleasures and believing that I was entitled to those things, none of that would have been possible without the sexual revolution. If you're a woman in this audience that has taken the morning after pill, or availed yourself of IVF, or did not get called a slut or a wench for a one night stand, congratulations. You have also enjoyed the fruits of the sexual revolution. And yet revolutions are unpredictable, and new freedoms come with invisible costs. Consider just a few facts. Marriage rates are at historic lows. They have plummeted nearly 60% over the past 50 years in this country. And who does that affect most? The poor. Today, only 30% of working-class kids are raised by two parents. Compare that to 85% of upper-class kids. In the 1960s, the rate was 95% for Americans across the board. Birth rates are also down. In 1950, women were having roughly three kids per family. Now it's one, sometimes maybe two. Then there's the unprecedented boom in the availability and the consumption of porn. Pornhub has 2.8 billion views per month. And think about the kind of porn people are consuming. As high schooler Isabel Hogman wrote recently for the Free Press about the first time she came across porn, quote, I saw simulated incest, bestiality, extreme bondage, sex with unconscious women, gangbangs, sadomasochism, and unthinkable physical violence. And I discovered it all when I was 10 years old. So porn is booming, but happiness is not. The sexual revolution promised liberation, but women are less and less happy with every year that goes by. In a recent Gallup poll, American adults reported the highest rates of depression in nearly a decade, with women having the highest rates of all. Thank you to whoever the sadist is in the audience. <laughs> but perhaps our rates of anxiety and loneliness and unhappiness aren't so surprising when you look at the relationship between the sexes. As one writer recently put it, modern heterosexual dating culture appears to be an emotional meat grinder whose miseries and degradations can't be solved by ever more elaborate rituals of consent. That's Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times, hardly a social conservative. But maybe most startling of all, considering what the sexual revolution promised, is that men and women aren't actually having a lot of sex. In 1989, nearly half of Americans reported having sex weekly. Now the number is down to 35%, and only 6% of women say, according to some studies, that they orgasm during sex. Now that number obviously excludes lesbians who, studies show, only orgasm when they are buying clogs. <laughs> Katie Herzog, that one's for you. 
So a lot of people are left asking themselves this. When the old sexual norms changed, who won and who lost? As the script between the sexes has been rewritten, who actually got to write it? What were the consequences of decoupling sex from love? Who is our current sexual culture actually geared toward? Is it that we're doing the sexual revolution wrong? Or is it that with the hindsight of half a century, the movement that promised women sexual equality and liberation has actually failed on that promise? In other words, was the sexual revolution a mistake? The point of tonight's debate, as all debates are, is to persuade you, the audience, in order to know who presented the better argument, in order to know which side changed your mind, we need you to tell us where you sit before we even begin. So, pull out your phones, please, right now, and vote for the proposition. Where do you stand right now by using the number right up there on the screen? And once you do that, you're gonna be sent the proposition via text. Text the letter A for yes, the sexual revolution has failed, or B for no, the sexual revolution has not failed. Okay, while we tabulate the votes, let me take a minute to introduce four brilliant people with uteruses debating tonight's proposition. <laughs> Arguing in the affirmative, yes, the sexual revolution has failed. We have all the way from London, the author Louise Perry. Louise literally wrote the book on this subject. It's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. If you haven't read it, you have to pick it up. Welcome, Louise. <laughs> Joining Louise on the pro side of the argument, I know she's got some fans in the house, is the singular Anna Kachian. As everyone here seems to know, Anna is a cultural critic, a writer, and the co-host of the podcast, Red Scare. Which, as one reviewer put it, has the unique ability to make everybody angry. Anna, welcome. And now, the opposing side of the argument. Here to argue that no, the sexual revolution has not failed, is the great Sarah Hader. Yes, give it up for Sarah. Sarah is a Pakistani-born writer, speaker, and activist, best known for co-founding ex-Muslims of North America. She currently writes on the substack, Hold That Thought. Please welcome Sarah Hader. And last, but certainly not least, Grimes. Grimes is a singer, songwriter, and record producer with five studio albums under her belt. She was recently named by Time as one of the 100 most influential people in AI. Among my favorite things she has said is this. Personally, I don't think Manic Pixie Dream Girl is an insult. I identify exactly with all of those terms. <laughs> Grimes, otherwise known as Claire and C, welcome. Okay, now let me explain the rules. 
Each debater is gonna get a five-minute opening statement explaining their position on the motion. We're gonna start with Louise, then we're gonna go to Sarah, then to Anna, and finally to Grimes. Those opening remarks, which they'll do from the podiums over there, will be followed by two-minute rebuttals from each participant in the same order. Then I'm gonna ask some questions of the debaters, we're gonna get into it, and finally we'll end with two-minute closing statements from each debater, and you're gonna be polled again to decide who won. Okay, so let's take a look at the initial polling, which has the sexual revolution failed? 56% of you believe that yes, it has failed. You're with these guys, these broads, and 44% say no, it has not failed. Okay, so that is where we stand, 56% to 44%. Let's see who can change the most minds over the course of this evening. Is everybody ready? Yes, is everybody ready? Hell yes. Okay, be it resolved, the sexual revolution has failed. Louise, let's start with you up at that podium when you have five minutes for your opening argument. When you have one minute left, you're gonna hear a little ding ding bell. And again, when time is up, the floor is yours. I'm not gonna mess about, we've got five minutes, so. <laughs> The sexual revolution, I think, is two things, okay, that are acting combination. The first is an ideological event, right, that you have the radicalism of the 1960s encouraging a rejection of tradition, a rejection of religion, a rejection of all the bourgeois sexual norms of the past. This is not historically unprecedented. It is quite common across history to have periods of licentiousness alternating with periods of prudishness. But generally, licentiousness doesn't stick because... Having sex is probably the most consequential thing a woman can do in a world without contraception, and a lot of women aren't willing, aren't willing to take that risk for the sake of ideology, which is why the second component, which is the technological component, is so important, and that's the pill, of course, followed soon afterwards by the decriminalization of abortion because the pill, particularly in its early days, isn't actually that effective. It still isn't 100% effective, and so you need abortion there as a backstop if you're going to pretend that sex is really consequence-free. And of course, all of that is only possible because we're undergoing still uh, an historical event that I think is probably going to be remembered by historians of the future, if we produce any, as something like... <laughs> a second reformation. So the first reformation was the rejection of Catholicism. The second reformation, which we are still experiencing, I would say, is the rejection of Christianity and actually of religion per se. So all of that permits abortion, permits the pill, all of this. And what they do in combination is they act as a sort of acid on the very fragile system of sexual norms that had developed in order to regulate heterosexuality, right? And what a lot of feminists will say at the time and say still is that what that regulation actually served to do was to control female sexuality. And they're right, it did. What they tend to forget is that it also acted to control male sexuality, which is actually the more potent and arguably more dangerous force and in need of regulation. And look, I accept that regulation is onerous. I also agree with the sexual revolutionaries who say that chaste... Monogamy, lifelong, is not our natural state. It isn't our natural state. Actually, only about 20% of cultures on the anthropological record have been monogamous. We're the unusual ones. Well, we were up until recently. 
But the thing is that the other 80% are not feminist utopias. They're not matriarchies. Second-wave feminists searched really hard to find evidence of matriarchies on the historical record, and they came up short. What the actual other option seems to be for a complex society like our own is polygamy. So that's when high-status men have lots of wives and low-status men have none. And what you see, actually, now that we've lifted the prohibition on monogamy, is you see that we are tending back towards that human default. So you look at something like dating apps, and you see that high-status men are able to attract basically like digital harems of women. <laughs> Low-status men are losing out, as we all know, you know, famously. And the thing is about polygamous cultures that they're really bad news for women and children. They have higher rates of domestic abuse, they have higher rates of child abuse, they have higher rates of crime, full stop. And what's more, you end up with this system where actually the men at the very tippy top of the hierarchy have an enormous amount of power to set the terms of the sexual culture. And what I think we're seeing is what I'm going to describe as the homosexualization of heterosexuality. So basically a trend. <laughs> basically a trend towards seeing greater male preferences in the sexual culture. You know, in the same way that obviously you would expect to see in gay male sexual culture, because it's entirely composed of men, right? You're seeing that in the straight dating world as well. So more casual sex, more kind of anonymous sex, more porn, more tolerance for fetishes, all of this stuff. You know, Sex in the City is actually a TV show made by and about gay men. <laughs> like... They admit this, you know, Samantha, the horny one, she was based on a real person, a man. The writers have said as much, right? But the problem is that Sex in the City is so emblematic of this idea that having sex like a man and define... That's what they call it in the first episode. Having sex like a man is aspirational. And I've heard from so many women, because they email me all the time, who say that they lent into this. They tried so hard to prioritize sexual freedom. And it made them miserable because actually there are profound differences between men and women that I think we'll get onto over the course of the evening. And there's this line from Matthew Arnold that I think about a lot. Freedom is a great horse to ride, but to ride somewhere. Freedom is a good thing in the sense that it enables the good life, but if we can't decide what the good life is, what use is freedom in and of itself? Thank you. Thank you so much, Louise. We want to get deeper into the question of freedom in a little bit. Sarah, the floor is yours. Has the sexual revolution failed? Let's get five minutes on the clock for Sarah Hader and a round of applause, please. Hello, I am Sarah Hader, and tonight I will argue that the sexual revolution did not fail. <laughs> Thank you. First, I'd like to call attention to the fact that this resolution does not say, has a sexual revolution had some bad effects? If it said that, then I would be sitting alongside Louise, who is calling attention to some important problems in how we think about sex and sexuality. Instead, the resolution is so much more drastic than that. Has the sexual revolution failed? Which means that it has either made no difference in our lives, which is obviously not true, or that it has made them worse off. This is the standard that you have to use to judge whether or not it has failed. And there is no doubt in my mind that we are much, much better off 
on this side of the sexual revolution. And tonight, I hope to convince you of the same. I think the sexual revolution is being mischaracterized and scapegoated and blamed for problems that couldn't possibly be its fault. First, though, uh, let's talk about what it is. I agree, I think, uh, in broad terms with Louise's definition. First, that the sexual revolution has two components. Uh, main component is a technological advancement, birth control, and then a change in sexual mores that accompanied it, that were allowed for by this new technology. These mores are widely thought of as mainly a destigmatization of casual sex, but I think that's really misleading, as casual sex was not anywhere near as consequential for men. Instead, I think we should be more precise. It was a destigmatization of female participation in sex outside the bounds of marriage. After the sex revolution, sex was not automatically a cause for a woman's ruin. This decoupling of sex from reproduction also allowed for, in the first time in human history, a new understanding of sex as something that could be about pleasure. But like before, this new understanding was largely for the benefit of women. Since men cannot reproduce without orgasm, his pleasure has always been relevant. That's not the case with ours. In other words, before the sexual revolution, it never mattered how women felt about sex. This is why it's so hard to accept the logic that's shared by many in the anti-sex revolution camp, that the sexual revolution has been bad for women's ability to say no to sex. They're just being pressured to say yes all the time to hookups that they don't want. But it couldn't possibly be the case that sex is more coercive. Now we have to think about what can that be compared to exactly? the storied past where our great-grandmothers were having countless orgasms with no coercion whatsoever. <laughs> it's important to remember that before the sexual revolution, women were restricted from education and the workforce, both because they didn't have the option to delay their reproduction and because discrimination against them was legal, often justified on the grounds that they were expected to get pregnant. How is it possible that women, these women, who were living with husbands they could scarcely divorce and they couldn't survive without anyway, how could it be possible that they were being less pressured into unsatisfying, even painful sex than modern women? Also relevant, prior to the 1970s, rape was legal in every state in America if you happened to be married to your rapist. Before then, married women by definition gave consent, and unmarried women found themselves branded as morally and psychologically disturbed if they chose to have sex before marriage. In other words, consent was a matter of legal status, granted by a court and a priest, not given by a woman or a man. Opponents of the sexual revolution might also say that today young girls are newly encouraged to commoditize their sexuality, to sell it on the marketplace. But this again shows remarkable ignorance of the conditions that we lived in prior to the revolution. While it can't be denied that some women today trade sex more openly and directly, it's true, open OnlyFans exists. In a world before a woman could get properly ed educated, couldn't really hold down a job, couldn't control her own fertility, what other option did she have but to commoditize sexual access? Fundamentally, what exactly was every single woman doing when she married, if not trading her body for material support? Access she wasn't legally to allowed to deny after the fact. Of course, marriage is much more than that, and a good marriage is anyway, um, but it should be obvious that without <laughs> decoupling sex from reproduction, that for the very first time, far from broadly introducing the commoditization of sexuality, 
women have the choice to fully and truly opt out of the sex trade. <laughs> well, I guess that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Back to the side that believes the sexual revolution has failed. Anna Kachian, the floor is yours. Let's get five minutes on the clock. Hi. Woo! Um, I might have to read because I have brain fog, which I like to attribute to having mom brain and the state of being a woman in general, not my crippling internet addiction. I should also add that my remarks were ghostwritten by men, so asking me to memorize them is asking too much. Um, whether that proves the sexual revolution has failed or succeeded, I'm not sure, but that's the question we're here to answer this evening. Um, it's a question that can immediately be answered by the fact that this is an all-girl panel. Make of that what you will. I'm happy to be here and to be sharing the stage with these amazing women. Louise Perry, probably the smartest person in the room, which just goes to show how far we've fallen. <laughs> Sarah Hyder. Sarah Hyder, who courageously turned her back on Islam to become an even worse thing. <laughs> um, Grimes, she's not actually here today. She's been dealing with a lot right now. That's a hologram. And, of course, Barry Weiss, who has single-handedly kept anti-Semitism alive in this country. Um, it's hard for me to sit here and argue with a straight face that the sexual revolution has failed, even though that's what they're paying me for. Um, let's face it, all of us here on stage are the winners of the sexual revolution, and the sexual revolution is the winner of the culture war. We finally found a way to have it all, and yet we're still not happy. Nor can I claim, as my partner has, that the failure of the sexual revolution comes down to the fact that what originally started out with the goal of liberating women now mainly serves to benefit men. Realistically, men really only had a few decades of enjoying the fruits of the pill before Title IX and Me Too made male sexuality presumptively illegal. <laughs> and yet, here we are still having the same debate from the same assumptions. Women are objected, objectified and oppressed, though it's no longer clear by whom. The patriarchy is alive and well, though apparently there's also a crisis of masculinity. No offense, but the idea that we live in a society where men are in charge is funnier than anything Tim Dillon has ever said. Um, <laughs> The response from both the feminist camp and its post-feminist critics has been predictably to double down on blaming men for a host of offenses from workplace, from hostile workplaces to eating disorders. Um, this is perfectly in line with the progressive view that when things go wrong, all you have to do is keep doing the thing you were doing before that made them so bad in the first place. Um, several waves of feminism later, we still haven't left the plantation of treating women as victims, deprived of agency, suffering from a false consciousness that forces them to compete with, other, with each other for male attention, unless, of course, they become mothers and are suddenly endowed with the timeless wisdom that actually porn and casual sex are bad. Um, at the same time, I don't really have much faith in that my brand of feminism, which I stole from Camille Paglia, and which says that women do have a lot of power and agency will prevail. Um, I seriously doubt the utility of um, commenting on observable female traits and behaviors, for one. Women don't like it, and they really seem to take it personally, because our strength lies in keeping things unofficial. 
and evading responsibility. Plus, both men and women are invested in maintaining the fiction that women are the fairer sex, not operating out of ordinary incentives, just like everybody else. Um, if you disagree, you're either autistic or an incel or both, which means you're right-wing and you're not entitled to an opinion. Um, the problem we now face is that this unofficial style has been officially baked into the system. The most problematic legacy of feminism is that it made topping from the bottom the top-down procedural thing. So my beef with the sexual revolution has less to do with its inco incoherent attitudes towards sex than with the way the resulting chaos has been leveraged to capture the institutions, the university, the media, and so on. Um, what this means in practice is getting rid of the sexy 60s counterculture stuff while keeping the sexless schoolmarm HR department stuff. Um, <laughs> The model we're left with is one that selects for the insane and the incompetent, or just sociopaths pleading insanity by pretending not to understand reasonable objections and getting offended at everything. This makes their position unfalsifiable with liberals who are powerless to challenge anything coming at them from the left. Um, I hate to go here, but abortion and transgender are, the two, are two good examples of how issues on which most people agree are steered by fanatics. Um, the question then, then becomes, can you criticize the sexual revolution without questioning the entire feminist project, not to mention progressive ideology itself? If the sexual revolution failed, it failed because it won. Thank you. Last but not least, we have Grimes putting five minutes on the clock. Um, okay, tonight I argue that the sexual re revolution will be successful. A revolution is a bomb and violence cannot be a, a success in and of itself because violence is a means to an end. But the sexual revolution is incomplete and therefore much nearer to success than failure. Revolutions historically fail when their violent nature becomes their identity, but they succeed when an improved culture is rebuilt in their wake. We are all rebuilding the culture right now. Uh, this was already said, but I'm saying it again. We are four young mothers debating in the public square because we were able to plan our families around our careers. It may not feel novel, but in the grand arc of history, this is a rare luxury. The sexual revolution is both a cultural and a technological phenomenon. Birth control, abortions, hormone therapy, pornography, dating apps, blah, 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 blah. Um, the resulting freedoms, behavioral changes, and psychological impact of these technologies have deeply impacted traditional mating practices. Fertility, re relationships, and marriage have all plummeted, while depression and loneliness are widespread and climbing. The opposition will correctly argue that the dismantling of sexual norms has left us worse off in many ways. But my rebuttal to traditionalists will always be that advancements in technology must always be accompanied by advancements in complementary social technology. Social technologies include religion, currency, manners, law, values, memes, government. Social technology is analogous to the idea of social engineering. To quote Sam Oberia, it is the intentional design of specific social arrangements and ways of operating. Social tech is designed to better acclimatize our monkey brains and bodies to the tools we're using. If the car is the tech, the collective agreement to wear seatbelts is the complementary social tech. Culture just doesn't just happen to us, it is us. 
And if it is hurting us, we can redesign it. I argue that the sexual revolution is a natural and unavoidable stepping stone to the world we all want, a world where everyone is sexually free, but with the aid of clever social engineering, many still choose traditional family values because they are just as enticing as the alternative. For example, the technological and social changes of the last 50 years have made intergenerational living socially uncomfortable, which has resulted in a massive loss of wisdom about family building and removed the natural caregivers that would normally help raise their own grandkids. There's no compulsory classes about how to be a good father, mother, or partner in any school that I'm aware of. No wonder so many people are lost when it comes to forging or maintaining the kinds of relationships required to have a lasting marriage or babies. Similarly, communal tribal-style living with like-minded community has totally changed my experience as a mother. This cultural practice or so social technology seems obvious, but it's expensive to obtain enough housing for communal living with numerous families. Housing reform legislation is just one of the puzzle pieces necessary to build the cultural norms we need to undermine the maleffects of modernity and of the sexual revolution. Conversely, I know so many people who experience great emotional satisfaction from unconventional sex lives, and those behaviors can be traced back to Neolithic human behavior just as readily as monogamy can. Uh, however, right now, the rel that realm of sexuality is comparably overweighted in the culture. Our infrastructure makes ch children inconvenient and expensive. Childhood and motherhood are invisible in pop culture. Our education system is crumbling. In my opinion, social engineering a social environment where parenthood is adequately supported and valued is an attainable goal. I suspect this would cascade into uh, less judgment of non-traditional sex lives. The sexual revolution is net good and will succeed if we can get to the finish line. Okay, everyone now has two minutes to rebut the opposite side. Louise, we're gonna start with you. You have two people on this side who say, Sarah Hader says, Compared to what? Yeah, sure, the sexual revolution had left some bad things in its wake, but compared to what? A reality in which rape was legal in every state. Grimes says the sexual revolution is just incomplete, that we're in a kind of liminal space in which we have technology that's advanced, but not social mores that have advanced. Louise, I leave it to you. Two minutes. Mm. So the pickle you get into as a conservative commentator is that if you're a progressive, it's really easy to say, yeah, but not yet. What we need is more of what we're doing now, exactly as Anna described. We need to just keep pressing the same lever again and again, and it's all going to come good, I swear. It's just around the corner. It means that you're never in the position of having to actually defend something that's real. Whereas the problem that conservatives get into, inevitably, is, is you inevitably get that response, which was, you want to go back to the 1950s? You want to go back to the 13th century, like whatever era you want to name. And then, of course, you get into the, the, the trap of having to defend every single feature of that culture, which I'm not going to do. What I do want to say, though, is that we are very, very weird. And I think we forget how extraordinarily weird we are. And it's partly because of the pill. It's partly because of the internet. There are a million different material factors that are leading us to be very, very strange culture in a lot of ways. The argument that I'm making is that we just be a bit more normal Basically, we just be a bit more normal. I'm not advocating theocracy. I'm not advocating, you know, Puritans banning music in Christmas, you know, anything like that. When people call me a Puritan, I'm like, do you know what Puritans thought? Um, 
what we've discovered is that you do need a sexual culture. Like, the idea of just having a complete free-for-all, of just collapsing every single norm and hoping for the best doesn't work. And actually, what we've seen is since that effort, what we've had is actually a kind of rushing in to fill the gap, you know? Like, have you noticed that the people who are most agitated about pronouns are also the people who are most agitated about, like, age gaps? Like, we've gone from having, I think what's happened is we used to have, you know, a flawed, obviously, but a basically internally coherent set of sexual norms, set of rules that people kind of knew where they stood. Since that's collapsed, what people have had to do is reconstruct from scratch, which is why we had Me Too, which is why we have all sorts of kind of perverse, like, sex bureaucracy that has been thrown up in the wake of the sexual revolution, because people actually crave limits. They crave order, they crave restrictions. What I'm saying is, why can't we just write some better ones? Okay, thanks, Louise. Sarah. Louise began her opening statements, or closed them, rather, by saying that freedom is a good horse to ride on if it's going somewhere. Is that true, or is freedom just a good in and of itself? Is choice just a good in and of itself? Is choice a good in and of itself? Not necessarily, and I do... I do think that the uh, sexual revolution is missing something. Um, and I know that this is something uh, Louise might make fun of me for, uh, because I am saying more of this, but not, not quite, right? Because there's something, there's something missing. So much of our discourse about sex and sexuality is dishonest. Uh, we don't, it's not really very open. We really don't understand a lot of things about ourselves and our different biologies and psychologies, and we don't really have an open uh, discussion to, to work this out. Choices require an intellectual foundation. Without them, it is like making, making a choice blindfolded. Obviously, you're not going to do a great job. So I do think that there's a ways to go. This doesn't mean the sexual revolution has failed. This just means that for a little while, 50 years, which is a, you know, a blink of an eye, I mean, more than 50 years now, but a blink of an eye in, in human history, we have not done everything we could to support the new choices that are coming into our view. And it's not just with the sexual revolution, it's really everything. I mean, this has nothing to do with Christianity, de-Christianization or anything. It's about technology breaking down a lot of things, a lot of norms that we took for granted for a very long time. Now, I don't have time to rebut everything that was said, and I realize now that I'm going to lose the debate because it turns out that this is about every gripe that we have against feminism, liberalism, progressivism, whatever, and I don't have time to talk about all of that, but I, what I can do is defend the sexual revolution, uh, which, which was about giving women control over their own fertility. Thank you. Anna or Hologram of Hana, you're up. Okay. I love you too. Um, Sarah um, makes a very persuasive agreement or uh, argument that <laughs> Freudian slip, I actually low-key agree with her, you guys, um, <laughs> that it, it couldn't possibly be the case um, that uh, sex is more coercive now than it was before. Um, 
and also that it couldn't possibly be the case that women are more commodified sexually than they were before. Um, it's a very interesting proposition. Um, the problem is that in our present situation, there's really no one left to blame but yourself, which I think is difficult for people because our psychology likes to look outward to blame other people and other things, the patriarchy, capitalism. And I think that's the big problem with what we're talking about because the excess of freedoms, the excess of choice leads to a kind of analysis paralysis. Um, a lot of energy has gone into trying to quantify whether women were more depressed before or after the sexual revolution. Um, the answer to this seems obvious enough, but it's not obvious enough to suggest a solution. Um, if women were indeed worse off then, which you can argue, um, they were possibly also more accepting of this reality because it didn't occur to them that they had a choice in the matter. And the ones that did occur to, like Betty Friedan, like Camille Polly, like Katie Royfe, and so on, um, knew exactly what they were rebelling against. Today, the situation is much more complicated. Um, Grimes, on the other hand, um, makes this point um, that we're still building civilization and society. I saw on Twitter her gesturing toward Ben Gesserit mindset, which is a reference to one of my favorite books, Bronze Age Mindset, and also a Dune reference um, that talks about a eugenical society created by women. We know what happens when women become the managers and planners. They administrate the, de um, the decline of the civilization that men built. <laughs> Twenty minutes in, and we have our first BAP reference. Grimes, you, two minutes on the clock. Uh, um, I don't know who, who I'm even supposed to be rebutting, um, but <laughs> these two people, both of them. Okay, uh, I just feel like there's a lot of uh, like okay, correlation is not causation. We're, there's a lot of assumptions being made. There's a lot of like blaming the sexual revolution for like uh, you know byproducts of like all of us becoming all, all online all at once at the same time and like the massive trauma of that or like, you know, class issues like fucked bureaucracy and the government, like whatever, we have a lot of problems like that have nothing to do with gender or like it's tangentially related. But uh, uh, what I will say is like, uh, people are sad. It's like there's 44 million missing women in India right now. Whatever sh we're going through, it's just not that bad. And I just, like, um, I think the other things that you guys are talking about when we're debating those things, we are talking about, again, wider civilizational design. Like, we actually haven't properly sat down and tried to design civilization. We have, like, sort of, like, casually evolved into what we have. And we're, you know, like, you just need to look at the the way our government, like our voting system works. It's like ridiculous and archaic and based on like some random farming thing from like however many years ago. And like, this is not well designed. This is like a shitty evolutionary outcome. It's like surviving, but it's not thriving. And my, I'm, the argument I keep coming back to, like, you know, Louis said, I'm saying we should push the same buttons. I'm like, no, I'm, I think we should push, push radically different buttons. Like what does happen if we just compensate motherhood? Um, at the same time, we've like, um, We've shit all over med men so much that like they like can barely function or seem to be having some mass mental health problem. How can they be fathers? I don't know. <laughs> Society is yeah. Okay. 
now we're going to get into a little bit. Louise and Anna, I want to start with the two of you because what I'm hearing from you, and I don't disagree, and I don't even think the other side disagrees, is that our current norms around sex and relationships aren't great. No one is going to stand up here and say, yes, hookup culture is awesome. But I think the question is, how do you change it? How do you make your argument a reality? And how far are you willing to go? Right? Like right now in 15 states in this country, abortions are banned. In Georgia and South Carolina, abortion access is cut off at six weeks. In North Carolina and Nebraska, women can't get abortions past 12 weeks. And there's a dozen states currently allowing some health providers to refuse birth control entirely. And I wonder how that's not the logical conclusion of your argument. In other words, Louise, as you said, freedom isn't a good in and of itself unless you're riding in, the, in a particular direction, unless you have a certain North Star. But how do you get people to ride in the direction that you think is correct without that kind of coercion? How far are you willing to go in order to change the reality that you guys think is, is mistaken? Meaning the logical conclusion of the argument you are making is that too you said, Anna, that too much choice has led, has led to analysis paralysis. That, and Louise, you made the point, that wonderful quote, that freedom is a horse to ride unless you, that only works if you're going somewhere. So where are we going toward? Like what policies would you guys consider supporting or adopting that would take us back to, as you put it, Louise, a more normal place culturally? So I don't want to ban abortion. Um, I also don't think abortion is a good thing. I mean, I basically agree with the Clinton line about safe, legal and rare. I think the modal voter basically agrees with that line as well, um, both here and in the UK. Um, what I, the reason for that is because the fragile system of sexual norms that I described at the beginning can't be reconstructed overnight. And the idea that it would happen immediately upon the criminalization of abortion, I think is fanciful. I think it's more likely that what happened in Romania um, with state orphanages filled with unwanted children would be the likely outcome. But you know, I, I agree with Grimes that actually prioritizing a culture that was really good for mothers would be like a truly feminist project and would also end up... <laughs> and would also... One effect of that would be reducing the abortion rate. You know, the fact that, like, there was a, there was a, a strong argument made by some more radical second waivers that actually the fact that one in four pregnancies ends in abortion is indicative of the fact that women are not really in control of their sexuality and that abortion is a bad outcome for the woman, not just for the... Like, whatever you think of yeah. the... the, the the status of the fetus. Yeah, I mean, there's this famous statistic that people like to throw around that's absolutely true and pretty damning that um, when um, the contraception, when contraception, you know, reached, was became available on an industrial scale, it was supposed to minimize the number of abortions. And in fact, it um, raised them. I think that we have to come up with a kind of more reasonable European model for abortion instead of this extremely polarizing situation we have in this country. Um, you, we saw what happened when Roe v. Wade was uh, overturned and all of the European leaders took to Twitter to genuflect to the American left, um, talking about how this was like a great um, uh, abortion of justice, when in fact they have um, much stricter abortion 
rights than we do here. So none of that adds up. And I think, like, I don't know uh, how we would go back to that because I'm not a politician or a strategist, but there has to be a kind of more moderate conversation on topics like abortion, which, by the way, most people agree on. Most people, including myself, even though um, I'm personally, I personally view abortion as, like, you know, a, a sin and a stain on your conscience as a woman, but you know, I'll be upfront, I've had an abortion, and I think that that is something that most women don't take lightly, but the fact is, in, in this country, um, you only hear the voices of the extreme fanatics. Sarah and Grimes, I think the fundamental argument your side is advancing is basically saying expanding freedom is generally a good thing. But freedom for one group, as we have seen, I think, in the past few decades, often means less freedom for another group. And millions of working-class American kids, arguably because of the sexual revolution, are growing up in a broken home or a home with just one parent, while their more wealthy counterparts either can afford nannies or grow up in a two-parent homes, and they have demonstrably better outcomes across the board. So how do you reckon with the fact that freedom to choose, which is really, I think, at the core of what the sexual revolution is about, has really meant freedom to choose for the wealthy or the upper middle class? And freedom to choose for everybody else has largely meant being relegated to whatever the man who got them pregnant decides to do. How do you contend with that issue? Yeah, um, I take issue a little bit with what, uh, the way that you phrase it in the end there, Barry, because uh, it, it's, it's not actually the case. I think a lot of these like, lower income women, like single mothers, are being very misunderstood. There's this idea that uh, they, you know, just, they're having a lot of casual sex and then they get you know, pregnant because they're not uh, using, you know, or, or that they don't want the children that they're having, that these uh, pregnancies are you know, a disaster to them. But, but that's actually not true. When we listen to these women and we talk to them about their experiences and there's been lots of studies done on this. You can, you can look at them up and you can talk to these mothers. Um, they will say that their pregnancies might be unplanned, but they are not unwanted. Those children are not unwanted. And they are, uh, they are a source of great meaning in a context where there's not, it's not, there's not a lot of easy ways to find meaning. And I think that's very important. Um, I, I would also, I, I do want to talk about, you know, a person who I think gets overlooked in this conversation, and I know we're, we're going back to the time before the sexual revolution because that's actually what we're debating right now, but um, uh, we talk about single mothers and their existence today. There are more of them, it's true. Um, prior to the sexual revolution, between the post-war period and the sexual revolution, there were fewer single mothers than there are now, but there were far, far many more children who were being put up for adoption by mothers who wanted to keep them. This was called the baby scoop era, and I think that it really, you guys should go home and look, them, look it up, maybe, because it was a horrifying time. Um, the rates of American babies that were being put up for adoption were extremely high. There was a peak of it that was like, you know, eight, 89,000 or something. Um, and, then, and then it declined. It declined fast the second women were able to get an ounce of freedom, an ounce of, of understanding and acceptance, there were literally 
tens of thousands or more babies in the arms of their biological mothers who wanted them because the stigma got better. Anyway, I think that's a... While we're considering trade-offs, I think we should think about this one. Okay, too. well, let's talk a little bit. Grimes, do you want to jump in or can I? I guess what I would say is like, again, like we keep talking about symptoms and like if, like if you want to get back to the root cause, it's like the schools are fucked. People are not educated. People don't even understand their own fertility. They don't, like they don't understand how to not get pregnant. They don't understand what to do with. They do get pregnant. Uh, kids have bad outcomes because kids are like not literate. Kids are graduating from grade nine. We are in a massive literacy crisis. It's like, that's not the parents' fault. That's like... You know, our system is, is fundamentally failing, and it's fundamentally failing children first. Um, and, like, even just at the airport, like, wh why is the mom always in the... How does the whole line not move for, like, the moms to go to the front? I just, like, our culture, our culture doesn't make it easy to have kids. And, and so it's like, we, we're like, oh, single mothers, it's, like, it's, it's not doing well. It's like, no, the whole culture should fucking move Children are sacred. We won't live as a species if we don't have more kids. And we're like personally not a replacement rate. Let's talk a little bit about picking up, Sarah, on what you said about trade-offs. Because I think maybe the weakest part of this side's audience, so, sorry, this side's argument, <laughs> not the audience, we love you, is compared to what, right? Like it, I was editing a piece today about Masi Amini the young Iranian woman who, you guys will remember her name, killed by the morality police in Tehran under the Islamic Republic for the sin of showing her hair, right? That is what it is to live in a country that doesn't have this kind of freedom. How do you contend with that, right? How do you argue, against, like, if we look at other countries that haven't had a sexual revolution, sure, they don't have OnlyFans, they don't have Pornhub, they don't have people catching feelings, but <laughs> like they have cultures in which to be a woman showing your hair could be something punishable by death. How do you contend with that? I mean, I don't think that we are arguing that we should go back to that, and I don't think that we don't want to <laughs> we execute never even women really for showing that. Yeah, we're not trying to execute women for attempting to obtain an abortion or having extramarital sex. Um, we're just talking about, um, you know, Grimes points out that we live in a society that's uniquely unfriendly toward mothers and children, which I think is, is true and correct. Um, part of the reason that it is that way is due to the sexual revolution. That's something we can blame the sexual revolution for. Um, because young women who grew up not knowing what to rebel against have a frankly antinatalist and contemptuous attitude toward the sanctity of the family. It doesn't occur to them, they, they simply, they simply don't have the receptors to understand what it means to love somebody else more than yourself and to sacrifice yourself for them. And that is because, that is because, as, as Louise said, this was primarily a uh, technological revolution first that um, introduced contraception and then abortion on an industrial scale and decoupled sex from procreation. I don't, I don't know that I want to go back to recoupling sex and procreation strictly. That's not for me to decide. But there has to be, again, some middle ground. Do you guys 
look at the fact that women aren't ushered, sorry, mothers aren't ushered to the front of the line on an airplane or the breakdown in the family, do you blame that on the sexual revolution or do you blame that on other causes? I just think that's like sh shitty bureaucracy and bad manners. But like, it, like uh, I, I would also say, like, we are not far enough away. Like, the, the women who are not wanting ha to have kids watched their mothers grow up in shitty situations, watched their mothers be called just a homemaker, like, watched their mothers give up their dreams, right? Like, it's like, I don't blame, like, millennial women and stuff. Like, I don't think it's just that, like, they don't care. It's like, everyone is just like, oh my God, like, like I, like literally half the people I know have like some like borderline personality mom. And it's like, do they all have, but like, you know, we've been like, t <laughs> I, I think there's just like wider consequences here like, uh, and like second order effects of so many other things besi besides the sexual revolution. But like, especially like, I, th I think the like, you know, I'm not like sympathizing with the boomers a ton, but like, like the bo boomer, Women, who are like a lot of our moms, are, are, were stuck in this weird uncanny valley where they were told to have careers and stuff, still all like, kind of like left their jobs, were stay-at-home moms, and then told they were failures for that, and then kind of like went insane. This seems like a common theme. So I'm just like, uh, I don't blame us for looking at that and being like, I don't want that, you know? I, I think there's just so many other things besides just that like sociopathy or something. Anna, if you guys are saying though, and maybe Louise jump in. If, if you guys are saying you don't actually know if you want to recouple sex and procreation, aren't you on their side? I think, um, I think we should trade, uh, Grimes should come over here and I'll go over there with Sarah. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Now, I'll bite the bullet. So yeah, bite the bullet. I don't want to, we can't uninvent the pill. Um, as I said before, I don't want to criminalize um, abortion. What I do want is women to act like the pill doesn't exist. I think that would be the best outcome because what we've learned is that the shredding of social trust and structures has been disastrous. I, I, I take Barry's point, I take Sarah's point. There, is obviously, there are obviously enormous trade-offs in talking about a more authoritarian, a more conservative culture than we have now, which, you know, is partly kind of what I'm agitating for here. I actually would like us to have a feminist culture that manages to survive. Because as Anna said, we have a profoundly antinatalist culture. We have very low birth rates. Like what we're actually headed towards at the moment is a progressive culture that lasts all of 10 minutes in human history because it basically breathes itself into extinction. And so if we are going to have a, a culture that values, that values, you know, I like having a job. I like being able to go to university, all of this stuff. You know, the, the basic second wave stuff I'm completely on board with. What I want is one a culture like that that also manages to still reproduce itself and still be pro-mother and pro-family. And the problem is when we're talking about things like, you know, single mothers, I, I agree, you know. The question is who exactly is going to perform this supportive role? Because the nature of motherhood is that you do actually need at least one other adult in your life supporting you because you are physically disabled in late pregnancy, you know, like when I was breastfeeding in the early weeks, I was doing a 40 hour week just breastfeeding, right? Like you can't actually participate in the labor market as a new mother in the way that you otherwise would. You need other people to do that. And basically the question is this, do we ask people who we know, our family members, our friends, um, they used to be this kind of person who would like uh, provide you emotional and social support and like pay for the baby and stuff. We used to call them husbands. <laughs> do you want those people to perform those essential functions or do you want the state to do it? 
because those are the only options that isn't a third option. Those are not wait, the only options. Wait, wait, I have to, I, I. Okay, Grimes <laughs> and Sarah, 30 seconds each, and then I want to get to the next question. Okay, Sarah, I think that, you first. that is a, a, a kind of an unfair uh, choice that you're forcing us to make, because of course everyone would say you want a husband who loves you, but the point is that sometimes you have a husband who beats you, and then you do want the state to be there as a backup. That's, that's what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pro-police. I just, just think that the easy out is like, all employment ever should offer childcare, like every job should just, there should just be a nursery at every place anyone works. You know, and not even because it's like, oh, like well, welfare state or anything, but just literally like it's good to have children around. It's good to like ha have them in the culture. And then like also there's a lot of old people that are just like withering away and they all want to be around babies. <laughs> and like I, like. Okay, one of the things that you can't blame on bureaucracy or bad manners is porn. Okay, the late Andrea Dworkin, I saw a lot of people cheering when she came up on the screen before, said a lot of amazingly memorable things. One of them was this, the new pornography is a vast graveyard where the left has gone to die. The left cannot have its horrors and its politics too. And what she meant by it, of course, is there's no way to make feminist porn or ethical porn, that porn in and of itself is unethical and anti-feminist. Louise has said before that anyone who calls themselves a feminist cannot in good faith watch porn and shouldn't let their husbands watch it either. Sarah or Grimes, does either of you want to respond to that? Is porn part of the cost of the sexual revolution? Is it even a bad cost? Well, we've, we've had porn for a long time. Like, we've had porn for, like, like, you know, like, in the French Revolution and stuff. Like, we've just always had porn. It's just, like, digital life makes it a lot easier to access it. But, like, this is, like, you can go look at, like, ancient sites. Like, people have been drawing. Like, porn has existed for a long time. I still think porn is a little weird. I think it's kind of bad. I'd probably be happier without it. Uh, like, I... I, I, I I wouldn't want my kids to see it. I, like, I think it probably harms relationships, but still, also, we, should, we could be making better porn. Like, the, <laughs> no, like literally, like. She's such an optimist. <laughs> like, why is the script so bad? Why is the music bad? <laughs> like, why are the cameras bad? Like, like, beautiful cinematic porn. Like, why am I not seeing Antony and Cleopatra? Like, with the Shakespeare, with like anamorphic lenses, beautiful, great, great acting. Like, it could be good. Um. <laughs> I don't think we can top that. Sarah, one question for you. You well, can I touch the porn? Can yeah, I touch, touch the porn, porn bit? Because I, I feel like it's 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 I'm not here to defend porn either. I'm not I don't want to defend porn, but I think that this is one of those times where I kind of feel like, well, the sexual revolution is being scapegoated. I understand why people connect porn with liberalization of, you know, or destigmatization of casual Sex, they're actually not related. And when you think about it for like a second, you will understand what I mean. There are many, many people around the world, millions, countries, whole countries, where there are no sexual revolutions, there's been nothing, anything like the sexual revolution, and they are watching ridiculous amounts of porn. <laughs> Saudi Arabia has porn, lots of porn. Pakistan's watching porn. Egypt's watching porn. They're watching the American whole of, porn. I mean, but that's because it was but, unlocked look, by so, the so, sexual. So, so no, no, that's not true. It's not true because it's always existed. What the, what what has happened recently is that we have the internet and we have smartphones. If you go to Victorian England and then you give them the internet and a smartphone, they will have a thriving porn industry within weeks. But but okay. But what I'm saying is that that the sexual revolution is 
part and parcel. It's a package with feminism, liberalism, whatever you want to call it. And these are primarily, if not American, then at least Anglophone exports that go out to the rest of the world. Barry, why aren't we getting the interesting questions about... Uh, Do you want one now? <laughs> Here's one right now. I think... I will defend porn. I think the big problem with porn isn't that it's exploitative or immoral or unchristian, though it may well be those things. Um, it's that it eliminates all the risk of sex in favor of like low stakes, instant gratification. God doesn't want you to hear me. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like phones, video games, whatever. It becomes like a surrogate activity for participation in real life. And it also becomes in increasingly inseparable from real life. Um, so I think if you're going to argue against porn, it should be on those grounds, or else you're sort of just telling on yourself. That's, that's my two cents. Louise, do you want to get into porn, or can I give you a different question? I'll just say briefly that, like, Dworkin was completely bananas, but she was right about porn. One of the things, I think one thing everyone on this stage has in common is none of us would get up here and make the argument that we should limit free speech because neo-Nazis and bigots also use speech. And I, would, I think you could make the argument that so too should we not get rid of sexual freedom just because some people have bad experiences with sexual freedom. I would love for you two to contend with that a little bit. Like, the argument seems to be that we need to somehow, although you haven't quite said how, restrict choice in some way, or at least re-stigmatize, or maybe bring back shame a little bit. And I just wanna like, have you fill in that argument a little bit more, if you would. In addition to pretending like the pill doesn't exist, what are other things we should do, Louise, in addition to not allowing our significant others to watch porn? I mean, I have a long laundry list of things I think the UK government should do, but this maybe isn't the venue for those. There's another... I think that the idea of... We don't really live in a free sexual culture, right? I mean, Sarah talked at the beginning about women in the past, um, before orgasms were invented, um, <laughs> having painful, unwanted sex. Women are still having painful, unwanted sex. It's just having painful, unwanted anal sex. Like, that's basically the only difference. I'm serious. Like, the number of teenagers who are having, like, thoroughly miserable sexual experiences in the name of liberation is astonishing. I think we've basically just seen a flip. Um, it used to be they were stigmatized for being sluts, and now they're stigmatized for being prudes. It's the same thing. So the idea that we can just... The idea that we're experiencing freedom now, the idea that we could experience freedom, I think the nature of human beings is that actually we, we are social beings. Sex is a relational thing. Like, one's behavior and preferences necessarily impact on other people. Um, there's a line from another Englishman, which I think about a lot, which is R.H. Tawney, the historian, who said, freedom for the pike is death for the minnow. And I think that what we're experiencing in our apparently freer culture is actually all that we've done is kind of cleared the way for a lot of pikes, which has produced the ruination of a lot of minnows, because that's actually how power operates and that's how freedom really operates. So I think to... Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that the change will come um, from going around, you know, lecturing young women on how to avoid our past mistakes. I think we have to teach young women to 
um, except that what the previous generations of women have sued for has come to pass. With great freedom comes great responsibility. What does that mean? You have to take responsibility for your actions. You have to gain an intuition to take accountability. That means you have to have what Laura Kipnis called life experience. And unfortunately, a lot of awkward and uncomfortable sex falls under that rubric. So you have to kind of proceed at your risk. That's my feeling about it. Um, how do you create, how do you teach young women to take accountability, responsibility for themselves? Two last questions before we get to the closing statements. One of the people that I spoke to in advance of tonight's conversation is Richard Reeves. If you guys haven't read his book of Boys and Men, I recommend it. And he said this to me, which I thought was amazing. From a classical male perspective, the sexual revolution cannot go far enough. In other words, the sexual revolution suits men. It suits men in its detachment of sex and love, in its detachment of childbearing from marriage, in its normalization of porn. So, you know, in their fight to free women from a terrible reality, did the people who pushed the sexual revolution misunderstand what women really want and need? Or does Richard Reeves have it wrong that from a classical male perspective, the sexual revolution can't go far enough? Is it caricaturing women's sexual desires to say that? I, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'd question the premise a little bit. I don't think that it's a zero-sum game. I don't think that something that, you know, even if it was true that this was, sexual evolution was really amazing for women and really bad, for, uh, really amazing for men and really bad for women, which of course I disagree with. I think it's been pretty good for women, all in all. Um, you know, even if it was pretty good for women and then spectacular for men, I think that's that's a win. You know, I'm still for it. I think I think that would be that would be a great outcome. I think a lot of the problems that we are seeing with with you know modern society, a lot of the problems that we're discussing here today, are very much tangential to to the sexual revolution if they are related at all. There are broader problems about liberalism and about choice. Uh, Choice in the in the modern excess sense of the word, in the McDonald's sense of the word, that we just have too much of too many good things. That's a technology problem. That's a progress problem. But it's it's not something that can't be overcome without you know with 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 some education, some open dialogue and discussion. I mean, we can poo-poo it all we want, but. It's not a real solution to be, think, to be saying, well, pro progress is a problem, choice is a problem, but I'm not gonna talk about what I wanna restrict because I don't actually wanna restrict anything. I mean, it's not really something we can move forward with and we should be looking forward to finding a solution. Do you guys think the sexual revolution was basically, if not intentionally, but in practice engineered to suit the desires of men and not women? Um, Louise has very convincingly argued this point, but I myself am not so convinced. As I said in my opening statement, there was realistically only a very short time before me, um, when men could enjoy kind of an unlimited free-for-all of like loose tail. Um, now it's very clear <laughs> that um, we've gone back to this kind of almost prehistoric situation where like, um, 
women on dating apps compete for like the 20%, like top 20% of like alpha males and the rest of the men are like incels or betas or whatever. Um, I don't think men are having a particularly easy time of the sexual revolution either. Um, you look at like the statistics for men overall, more, more men are single today. Many of those single men are living with their parents. Their incomes are depressed. Their um, ex like outcomes are depressed. Their lives kind of suck. Um, the other thing is like, um, what happens when you de-incentivize normative expressions of male sexuality and make them punishable by like classically feminine modes of uh, like reputational damage or character assassination that also selects for freaks and perverts and guys with humiliation kinks <laughs> so i think overall the situation is not at all to the benefit of most men Okay, last question before we get to closing arguments. 30, I want 30 seconds from all of you. As Grimes mentioned in her opening statement, you're not just for incredible women, you're also moms. All of you have young children, as do I. And I wonder if we could close on a question just about the future you wanna leave for your children, not to make it too cheesy, but I'm curious. Louise set that out pretty clearly. In the end of her book, she says, listen to your mom, uh, which maybe will be her answer here. But what is sort of a healthy sexual culture that you want your children to live in? I would love, Louise, to start with you. And let's just do a quick round robin, 20 or 30 seconds each. Um, I don't have any... I basically think that most grandmothers are pretty much right about all of this stuff. And you can ask... Um, any given woman in her 70s or 80s, and she'll probably give you a fairly good answer to this. You know, we have conducted a very radical social experiment. I mean, it had it conducted on us, really. It's just a consequence of material factors, really. No one designed this, really. You know, Hugh Hefner really enjoyed the sexual revolution, but he didn't really engineer it. Um, and I think what we're experiencing, what I sus suspect we are entering into, is an era of reconstruction, an era of people realizing that actually trying to have a kind of vacuum in place of a sexual culture doesn't work, and a process of reconstructing from first principles what our grandmothers could have told us if we'd bothered to listen. Grimes? What world do you want your kids to grow up in when it comes to the sexual, sexual culture? I mean, I just hope they, like, really like the people they're dating. Like, I, I, like, I hate to... Uh, I just feel like we're gonna have AI girlfriends and stuff. Like, it's gonna be so crazy by then. Like, I just, I can't, I can't even, like, fathom. Like, I, I, I feel like everything we're talking about now, like, we're not even, like, we, women might be obsolete in, like, five years. Like, just to be clear. Uh, I hope not. But, you know, I, I, I hope uh, uh, living women still have a chance in <laughs> the future. <laughs> Amazing. Anna. Um. I just hope um, that my son can feel confident and secure in his masculinity, um, which in turn will make him act honorably and with respect toward women. And that probably comes down to um, listening to his grandmother and also me, his mother. Um, 
Uh, Grimes mentioned early on uh, about a return to more kind of communal arrangements, uh, living family living arrangements, which freaked me out because, um, you know, we have that famous statistic of, uh, that children living um, w with one genetic parent and one step parent are something like 40 times more likely to suffer physical abuse. You can imagine that the numbers probably either stay the same or go up for sexual abuse. Um, and you can imagine how that scales when you're living in a weird Bushwick trap house. But nice. on the other hand, I really do like the idea that she brings up that other feminists have argued for, which is the idea of a return to an extended clan. Sarah? I like that, yeah. Return to an extended clan, I think, is a great solution to a lot, of, a lot of problems. And there is a way in which modern society can facilitate it. Very, very modern. I mean, work from home saw. A lot of people return literally back to their hometowns and spend more time with their families. I think that was wonderful. That's one way in which you can have a modern society with some choice and go back to the things that make us strong. I hope my, you know, um, I, I hope my son is able to, you know, experience the world um, openly, but also, you know, choice is wonderful. We've been, I've been arguing for choice this, you know, this this whole time. But I think it is, it really isn't enough. And I think that's that's what we're facing here today. And while we're talking, what it, it isn't enough. Um, and I hope he's able to you know, discover a little bit um, of what could give life meaning. I think that is family. I think that is community. I think that is something we can prioritize while allowing us choice. Thank you so much. Okay, round of applause for all of our participants. Okay, now, if this is possible with the people manning the time clock, I think we should put one minute on the clock for each of these closing statements, because I know we're super behind. If that's not possible, uh, we will try as much as we can to keep it to one minute. So each of you is gonna have one minute, maybe a minute and a half, to make the most compelling closing argument you can make, and the bell will ring at the end of that time. We're gonna go in the order we began with. Louise Perry, you are up. So I'm going to make the um, provocative argument that um, I think that social guardrails are actually a good thing. I think that social norms are actually a good thing. I don't think that we can have a cultural, moral vacuum and expect it to last very long. I think we should expect probably worse and more chaotic things to fill the gap. There are always going to be outliers. There are always going to be exceptions. There are always going to be trade-offs. I think a fundamentally tragic outlook on life is the correct outlook. But... My argument is that I think that if you are going to live a radical, subversive life, like the 1960s children tell you to, you should have an extraordinarily good reason to do so. And actually, most people will fare far better by obeying the wisdom of just being a boring normie and trying to get married and trying to have kids and trying to live in suburban uh, stability and affluence. Like, the vast majority of people actually fare best if that is basically the aspiration, and we don't just try and tear things down every generation and hope for the best. Sarah. Well, I, you know, it, 
there's not that much left to talk about it because I feel like we, we went off course um, and we're not, we're not really discussing the sexual revolution anymore. And if we, you know, if, if this is what it is, that we have a lot of gripes with modernity, we have a lot of uh, difficulties and challenges that we're facing today that are uh, unlike anything we've experienced before, I think it's, it's normal to feel dissatisfied and to feel like we were promised something maybe that we haven't, we haven't yet achieved. I think that those feelings are normal and those feelings are good, but I also think that we have a really exciting challenge ahead of us. We have, you know, for the first time been able to, you know, achieve some really incredible things. Even the sexual revolution, even control of our fertility is incredible. And never in the court, I don't know, it, there's no animal that has ever achieved anything like this. This is a scary thing. And of course, of course there are downsides. It's been 50 years. I think we can improve on this. I think we can build a better future. And the proposition today is whether we, would, we should keep what we have, keep the sexual revolution and build on it, fix it, improve it, yes. Um, or whether we should go back, um, or whether we would prefer to live in a world where it didn't occur at all. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Red Scares, Anakachu. Uh, first of all, I want to point out that we're all boy moms here, <laughs> except for Barry, right? I'm a girl so mom. Nature is healing itself. Um, <laughs> that's how we combat the ill effects of the sexual revolution. Um, I had to do a lot of mental gymnastics to get where I am today, um, arguing against the sexual revolution. It's hard to deny that the sexual revolution has been a great success for me personally and also in the way that it played out in the culture at large, um, though those things often come into conflict, especially as a mother trying to keep her child out of the clutches of rabid ideologues while making sure not to indoctrinate him too far in the opposite direction. Um, still, it would be hypocritical of me to blame the sexual revolution for everything. Um, instead, I'd like to blame liberals, uh, <laughs> particularly the intellectual dark web. <laughs> uh, for pretending to offer a heterodox alternative to wokeness while actually siding with it every single time. A question that kept coming up again and again for me is, do I think of myself as sex positive or sex negative? When Dasha and I first started the pod, I simply assumed I was sex negative because all the sex discourse we were hearing was so off-putting. But if I'm being honest, I'm actually sex positive. I think sex is cool and fun, and it's too late to go back anyway. Um, so terms like sex positivity and sex negativity really have about as much meaning as liberal and conservative. Um, the sexual revolution won out. Uh, decisively in the public sphere, uh, but it cost us a lot in the private realm uh, by making the personal, political, i.e. subject to constant renegotiation. It really took the wind out of its own sails and flung the door, the door open for carpetbaggers. Um, I think that we've raised enough awareness, we've broken all the taboos, we've destigmatized all the stigmas, um, and I think it's time to stop talking and take responsibility for our desires. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. And last up, before you get a chance to vote again, Grimes. Uh, oh, man. Okay. okay. I, mean, I mean, the thing I want to say is, like, uh, 
I still argue that the sexual revolution has succeeded if for another reason than I believe I have a moral imperative to optimism. I, I think if the possibility of failure is entertained, the battle is already lost. And this isn't even just about the sexual revolution, but like everything about our society, it's always like, is it good or is it bad? Is it this or that? Are we gonna like fight each other? Like, like, and it's just like, I don't know, I broken record here, I say this all the time, but like my favorite Buckman Fuller quote is, you never change things by fighting the existing reality to change something you build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Like if we hate it, make a new thing, you can develop like internal morality in your own community, in your own family. Like you can like teach your kids things, like they, they don't have to go to the schools and learn them. Like, uh, I don't know, I just like, um, I, I feel like people like forget their own agency uh, and actually, like, we have a lot of it, and there's a lot of us, and we have hands that we have imposable thumbs. Like, we like, are, are very impressive primates, and we're very smart, and we should make things better. And we can do it ourselves. Okay. It's time, it's time to vote to see which side won this debate. Yes, the sexual revolution has failed, or no, it has not. Take out your phones again. Please do it, because we really want to see and text vote two to the number on the screen. The letter A for yes, voting for Louise and Anna. The letter B for no, voting for Sarah and Grimes. While everyone does this, I want to extend a very special thanks to a bunch of people for making tonight happen. A huge thank you to Greg Lukianoff, president of FIRE, for making the trip to be here. And to Nico Perino, Alicia Glennon, and the entire FIRE team for making tonight happen. I also want to thank our friends at Substack, especially Hamish McKenzie, Chris Best, and Sachin Monga for giving us a platform that launched this entire company. Last but not least, the free press is a very, very new operation. And this is the first live thing we have ever done. And... I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful to Carrie Goldstein, who's probably just sweating somewhere in the corner. Carrie, if you don't know him, had the wisdom to put the late Christopher Hitchens on the road to debate God. And in his infinite wisdom, decided we could fill the Ace Theater uh, for our first ever debate. So Carrie, thank you so much. Um, okay, let's see who won tonight's debate. If we could put up that slide. Did we win or not? Wow. Oh, wow. Has the sexual revolution failed? 49%, this is an unbelievably close, 49% to Anna and Louise and 51% to Sarah and Grimes, which means Sarah and Grimes win the night. Well, that was hard. Okay. Uh, and with that, thank you for coming. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Grimes. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. We learned a lot from doing this first debate and we are so looking forward to doing more in 2024. More about that as we develop those shows. Last thing, if you wanna support Honestly, here it goes again. There's one way to do it. I really hope you do. It's by going to thefp.com, the Free Press's website, T-H-E-F-P.com and becoming a subscriber today. We're working hard to plan future debates and in-person events. And if you want to be the first to know about what's coming down the pike, you want to be a subscriber. We'll see you next time.